Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 9th of the 5th. It is another glorious Sunday. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary, fine. So the introduction of minimum alcohol pricing hasn't just sent you into a tailspin from which the only escape is an alcoholic stupor? The thing about minimum alcohol pricing is, you know, normally with psychic experiences or even physical ones, the longer it goes on, you, 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 you adapt to it and you get used to it. And, you know, gradually you, you you achieve a balance. With me in minimal pricing, I find the more, if the longer it's been going on, <clears throat> and for me it's been going on a long time because I've been talking about it and writing about it, and I even got on telly about it on one brief occasion, that I just get angrier the more I think about it because it just, the more I think about it, the more stupid and silly it seems and the less evidence there is and the more obvious it is that it's just an undisguised, naked, classist attack on people with not very much money who shouldn't be bloody drinking anyway because alcohol consumption, in fact, is actually correlated with income. So the more you, the, the graph, if you want to graph alcohol consumption, it, it, it mimics the graph of income. As income goes up, so does alcohol consumption. I know people think, or some people may think, some people may be in the Fine Gael party and others. I don't say well, I'm picking on Fine Gael because you know what, Gary? Every single party in the doll that I'm aware of supports this. People before profit support this, even though they are giving with their two little hands. They are giving profit to the supermarkets because the supermarkets, well, we have to, you know, this, you have given us an extra margin on this, which we, we can't do anything about. They're not even doing it through duty or through tax. They're not giving it to the exchequer. So the, my um, chosen method of dealing with minimal pricing is not to think about it. But thank you for reminding me now actually telling me that I have to spend the next three days actually researching and writing a paper for the end of work about it, which I also thank you. And if I can get to the end of next week's, have you having done this to me, and I haven't had an ischemic stroke, I think it will be the only people responsible will be the good people at Bayer for the fine quality of the medication they give for people with hypertension. I did see a piece of reporting on this during the week that I, I saw and I was like, that may actually just kill Michael. <laughs> oh, there's... There, there are there are some commentary pieces around Gary, which I feel I take almost personally as personal attacks on my physical and psychic health. There was a report in The Independent, and it's, it's headlined, Government TDs get figures revealing the true cost of alcohol after price rises are imposed. And this relates to the fact that um, when politicians were given their information as to the price increases that minimum alcohol pricing would cause the figures were wrong so it turned out that they had used a 330 milliliter can despite the fact that the standard iron is a 500 milliliter and they had used a four percent alcohol even though a lot of the leading brands are 4.5 up to kind of five percent depending if you're drinking some of that imported foreign filth michael <laughs> No, I will be, to be fair here, I have made mis mistakes myself on uh, estimates here because the reader, you know, a lot of the discussion involves things like how many units of alcohol. But the problem is there is absolutely no such thing as a standardised unit of alcohol. There is no SI unit of alcohol. Britain and Ireland, I discovered eventually, because I've been using British the British conversion figures, Britain and Ireland have a different uh, uh unit of alcohol. The United States uses a different unit of alcohol. I think there are between, depending on how you look at it, between 9 and 11 different units of alcohol used in the world. And then you have 4, 330, 445, 5 mil, and then pints. 
and you have 3.8 lagers and three four point zeros and fives and it does actually get a little bit complicated until you actually understand it and then once you understand it well then you just it doesn't but say it's it's not as obvious sometimes as it as it looks so I, i'm not going to kick them too hard on that although it is fun to discover when you see people say this won't affect people this won't affect people who have low incomes at all the price rises are going to be they're not going to be significant well they're not going to be significant well why the hell do you think they're going to affect people who are alcoholics or abusive drinkers in fact they are going to be very significant my personal favor has been the people who respond to a claim that this will hurt poor people because it's targeted at poor people it's it's to limit poor people's choices because if it didn't do that it wouldn't function as it's meant to this is what it's meant to do and the response of just well, you're just assuming that all poor people are just degenerate drinkers <laughs> no you are you are Okay, I, could I just, just throw in there for the example of the, the degenerate drinkers. Let's take two degenerate drinkers, Gary, who drink one and a half pints of beer when they come home at night. He and she, or he and he, or she and she, drink two cans of Tex Tesco Lager at 440 millilitres a can, which is at 3.8%. So it's a low alcohol small can, right? Works out around a pint and a half. On the current basis where every... Uh, Every gram of alcohol would be priced in a minimum of 10, 10 cent and then it would be 10 grams to a unit under the Irish system. It, you can buy four cans of that Tesco Lager for €2.60. That's their base price. That's their cheapest one. The additional cost to this part, this couple who are drinking a pint and a half of beer when they come home at night each will be around €930, Euro, Gary. €930. Euro. For the sake of handiness... On the basis that on Paddy's Day and Christmas, they might even spend a few more quid. A thousand euro. You're going to take a thousand euro net out of the income of two people. And if they're, if you take two uh, two people on who are low incomes, you say a thousand euro is not a lot of money? Is that the position of these people? Or is there a position that somebody drinking a pint and a half of beer when they come home from work is a degenerate drinker? Looking at the updated figures, the thing that immediately struck me and we, I have to, as you said, there's, there's a bit of back and forward on this, but it looks like from the figures we now have that it is now slightly cheaper to buy a nagin of vodka than four cans of lager. Now, Michael, I understand that the four cans have slightly more alcohol in them, but I'm going to put forward that drinking four cans and sculling a nagin of vodka are going to lead to a very different, what we might call, user experience. I absolutely it will, but it, this is a very good example, Gary, of the fact that one of the things that this kind of legislation refuses to take into account is that the subject of the legislation is not a passive receiver, but rather is a dynamic person who will make choices and respond to the changes in prices. Some years ago, it was decided to make illegal. There used to be a thing called a pound a pint night, which then possibly was a pound a euro night. Uh, in the universities and the colleges around the country. So they made these cheap night, cheap beer nights illegal. And what did that do? What it meant was that students then moved. Many students moved because they wanted to seek out the best bang for their book that they could get. And they moved on to the, the cheapest vodkas and cheapest spirits they could find. 
which was exactly, the, I mean, if, you're, if your interest was a public health worker, that was exactly the opposite of what you wanted to do. Because consuming large amounts of hard spirits in a very short period of time is, as from a health perspective, much worse for you than drinking large quantities of beer in around 3.84%. Neither of them are great for you. Nobody's saying that. But public health, it's definitely a worse outcome to have people in a, throwing back shots or magnets of vodka. And that, exactly. Also, do you not think that the reality is that the difference is going to, it, it, it's a lot easier to drink a magnet of vodka than it is to get through four cans. Not that it's hard to get through four cans. And then you might go back for more vodka. And you may go back for more vodka with a little orange juice maybe thrown in for the vitamin C. I don't find vodka terribly Moorish, but I suspect, Michael, alcoholics would. The thing about this thing is alcoholics and abusive drinkers aren't actually necessarily that interested in the whole taste experience, Gary. We have discovered, the studies tell us, is that it's that um, that they are alcoholics are in fact price sensitive but they are not brand sensitive in other words you make one thing expensive they will go and find something else now ultimately and i just want to make this point probably again i hear people talking about they're going to put up the price of cheap alcohol and we're going to attack cheap alcohol it'll only be cheap alcohol there is no cheap alcohol in ireland we are the second most taxed alcohol nation in, in Europe. Alcohol in Ireland in all its forms is very, very expensive. You can buy a litre of perfectly drinkable red wine in a Tetra pack in an Aldi or a Lidl in Italy for 99 cent. You can buy a Merlot for a 149, which gets 91, which scores 91 on the, on the equivalent of their, their Robert Parker score. Alcohol in Ireland is not, there is no cheap alcohol. The, in fact, the one of the problems historically in Ireland and is that cheap alcohol has always been expensive. Dear alcohol, ironically, is much the same price here as it is anywhere else. If you're drinking top premium brands, uh, first premier crews and all that stuff, you're probably not going to spend a, a massive amount, but cheap alcohol here has always been really expensive because the big kick happens in the duty. And the duty is applied to the alcohol, not to anything else. So the duty in a bottle of sparkling wine here is, what is the duty in a bottle these days? It's around six quid. And that doesn't matter whether you're buying a one point one fifty bottle of Prosecco or if you're buying some kind of a, a vintage Krug or a Cristal costing you three or four hundred quid. It doesn't matter. So there's no such thing as cheap. But alcoholics, when they go and you, you, you attack one form of cheap alcohol, they just go out and form. Now, the problem in a situation like ours is you will eventually do two things. You will either force people into, force people, you, you will create a black, either a grey or a black market where people will access uh, alcohol outside of the tax system, uh, which will happen here, which will happen in the border, and we'll have people going over the border. And you'll have what happens in Sweden where the figures are not reliable because you've got people making bathtub gin and brewing beer at home. They'll just, once you get to a certain tax point, you'll push people outside of the net and they'll go, and get there anyway and and so okay i know you want to get it but so just one one last point you're talking about your be the best thing you know you hear people talking about my favorite was for a small point but just an important one one td saying what well, we know this works if you look in the year after it was introduced minimal alcohol unit alcohol pricing was introduced in scotland we saw a decline 
in alcohol consumption. Now, actually, the funny thing is, Gary, we don't really know if that is true. We know that we saw a decline in the amount of money spent on alcohol in Scotland. Yes. We also know that towns near the border in the south, uh, near the border of Scotland in the south, you know, supermarkets are reporting forty percent increases in their alcohol sales, which may not be unconnected. Thing is, Gary, there was a decline in alcohol the year after. But did he bother to ask if what happened to the year before, and the year before, and the year before, and the year before? You mean the, histor- the historic reductions in the Scottish drinking rate that had been taking place for several years? Yes. I can, if you want, I can, I can find the headlines from 2016. See, the problem there, Michael, is that they are problematic now. Because if it was already falling, and let's say MUP comes in, and the fall that year is actually less than the year before, <laughs> that would be Which arguably bad. Where if you simply don't say, well, it was falling before this, and uh, you, know, you isolate it so that people can't view it in context, it looks... You know, it could only be mop. It can only be mop. Has to. We will see a decline in alcohol after this is introduced, Gary, in this country. And they will say, look, we did it. We did it. And they will carefully ignore the fact that unlike Scotland, alcohol has been declining here since 2005. Actually, maybe even 2003. We're getting on 20 years. But the language and the the twisting... Do you remember we talked about, there was a headline, wasn't there a headline in the papers which was quoting a thing from Alcohol Ireland which said, uh, homes awash with a flood of wine or something, wasn't it? Presumably because their first pass, which I would only imagine was liquor will kill your children and rape your wife, was deemed (laughs) too extreme. Probably. Yes, uh, the the tsunami of alcohol that was 6% lower. Than the year before we were actually we had actually declined by six and a half percent in consumption but the report was tsunami of wine into irish households the, the phrase in the moment seems to be unintended consequences so I, I was writing a while ago about how the the government looks accidentally but explicitly uh, banned the practice of giving uh, brides champagne when they're getting dresses fit but then you look at this and you're like in order to crack down on problem drinking, and Leo said this is going to save lives, Michael. Uh, although they've they used to be saying that quite a lot, and they've they've quieted down substantially about it over the last while. In order to save lives lost due to problematic drinking, the government has made it cheaper to buy a nagging of vodka than four cans. <laughs> I think that might be what we would call Michael. An unintended consequence. Do you think that was an unintended consequence? I suspect no one actually ever looked at the figures <laughs> and went, so, like, if I'm, like, a degenerate drinker, are we just going to make people buy spirits? And you, you see that with a lot of very hardline alcoholics. They go from beer to spirits because spirits are a more efficient way to get absolutely destroyed. I mean, you can have as many cans as you want, but they're just not going to be the same as a vodka and apple juice uh, highball. <laughs> they're just not going to get you the same place. There are there there are alcoholics who are very brand loyal, but within the the, the subset of abusive drink products, they tend to be price sensitive, but not brand sensitive. So they they will move on. They'll go and find the best bank. There there are a couple of groups of problem drinkers that this doesn't impact on. At all. But one of them is a real problem group that doesn't get talked about. And it's middle class and up women getting shit-faced on wine. 
there are an incredibly high amount of, of alcohol dependent middle-aged women these are the, the ladies that used to be uh, once upon a time would have had a, a couple of gins or maybe a, a glass of two or dry sherry your know, little mother's helper and you know it's cliched stereotypically middle class women not just middle class i was horrified to discover in some of my circle that the number of people who are knocking back a bottle of wine watching the t every night watching tv and uh, the wine that these people with wine will be utterly unaffected but gary you see you're staggering you're, what you're actually doing there is actually trying to make a serious point which is against i would say the fundamental principles and uh, of this podcast but okay we'll allow it for the minute just this once just this once what is the purpose of this legislation what is the real purpose of it is it to is it actually to stop people uh, killing themselves well you see they have to be skeptical that i mean you could make the point that for example alcohol consumption in sweden is lower than it is in ireland in it's in the quintile below us on the who figures but they are above us in that in the area of uh, uh, incidents related to al uh, admission admission to hospital illness and death due to alcohol connected uh, incidents and if you, you can also look look at sort of where we fall within the risk factors in the in the who and alcohol uh, uh, health issues but the fact is what this is is a shiny and cheap and utterly ineffective way of looking like you care about a public health issue I can't see how this is, how in practice anybody sensibly thinks that this is going to really impact on people with real problem drinking. If you wanted to help people who are alcoholics or abusive drinkers, what would you do? I mean, it would, it would involve creating all sorts of local uh, public health structures. It would involve counselling, treatment, psychotherapy. It would involve treatment centres, maybe specialised uh, treatment centres like uh, hospitals or uh, residential centres where people could go at the beginning. It would be expensive and it would be difficult and it would, who knows how effective it might be. But what you'd actually have to do if you're going seriously, without actually introducing some kind of draconian fascist level legislation to actually impact on this. And even if you did then, I don't know, because prohibition, it's unclear how much prohibition really helped abusive uh, drinkers in the United States. Consumption did fall, but again, I'm not saying that consumption won't fall because of MUP, but what I am saying is that a lot of the research that's out there does suggest that the consumption, people who are most price sensitive, Gary, tend to be moderate social drinkers. So well, I, I if, you're, if your aim is to actually help people who have a problem with this, I don't see that this is going to do it. But it looks like you're doing something. It's a, it, it's a really nasty, stupid example of what I consider to be the curse of our age, which is performative politics. It, uh, I think a lot of the purpose of this, actually, if you were to look into it and you were able to have an honest uh, conversation with a lot of the people pushing this, is not so much the cost issue of it at all. It's part of a denormalization process of drinking. Yeah. That that's the actual aim. It's, it's to denormalize drinking. However, Michael, there is a story of uh, relevance here 
Um, are you familiar with the story of Frederick the Great and the potato? I'm not. I'm, I'm familiar with Parmentier and the potato, but go on. So Frederick the Great, um, he was the king of Prussia in 18th century, mid-18th century to, to late. Anyway, he introduced the potato into Prussia. It had only recently been brought over from South America. And, you know, it's easy to grow, could be a great new food source. Peasants refused to eat it, saying that it is terrible, not even dogs will eat them. Why would we do it? So what what he did is he had fields of potatoes planted and put military guards around them to ensure the potatoes couldn't be stolen, saying that they were only fit for the nobility. And pretty soon, Michael, the peasants were all about that potato life. Yeah, I, I was wondering if that's where we're going to get. I, I'm aware of that story. I, I had heard of it that it was actually Parmentier who would, was captured by the Prussians who forced him to eat potatoes as his rations. And Parmentier thought the spuds were great and brought them back to France, where they became fashion. They, they, they did become fashionable. In and people used to put the flowers in their hats and things, but they couldn't get the French peasantry, so they put guards on. For a fun fact, for anybody, if you see a French recipe which says a la Parmentier or Parmentier, that means there's potatoes in it. Like if it says Lyonnais, that means there are onions in it. The actual point of that story is this. People tend to want things are scarce or they can't have, or they have a particular status to them. High status goods, things that are associated with people from the upper classes, tend to be seen as more desirable. Minimum alcohol pricing, if it is part of a denormalization strategy, makes alcohol more difficult to get for poor people. That may inadvertently increase the status of alcohol. Yeah, I, absolutely. Do you remember... Whether it's true or not, I know I've talked. But do you remember this? You maybe not remember. Cider was ha, was juicy at a different rate to other stuff, so cider was cheaper. And I think it was Brian, when Brian Cowan, Brian Cowan was Minister for Finance. He, he he brought it up. I've talked to guys who were in the cider industry, who worked for um, Bulmers, who said it was the best thing ever happened to them because they, in the conjunction with the price increases, they launched the marketing campaign marketing Bulmers as, a, as a, a craft product and basically transformed its image as being sort of something which was low, rather low and cheap and nasty into something desirable. And yeah, I think that if you, if you, I thought, but the interesting thing here is if it culturally is, again, going back to the, I, I said before, I think this is the answer to a question nobody's asking. If you look at the decline in drinking and particularly in bad drinking patterns in young people in Ireland. It's really dramatic. I mean, if you young people today, in comparison to their parents in who were, say, when they were young in the 1990s, they're drinking less, they're drinking later. When they do drink, they're not drinking, they're not binge drinking. Um, since the early 2000s, we have, Irish young people have dropped way down on the European, I think, Irish girls are second from bottom only above Iceland and boys are third from bottom uh, in their use of alcohol uh, in, in Irish teenagers. And that is not because of pricing, because, I mean, let's face it, alcohol, this is the decline in consumption of alcohol has occurred at exactly the same time as alcohol has become cheaper than it has ever been in the history of the state with the advent of the German multiples and the competition in the other large multiples. Alcohol has never been cheaper. 
And yet we've seen year-on-year declines in consumption. Young people are drinking less because of cultural changes. You're you're closer to this generation than I am. Very uh, when I was a young and thinner man, there was very little gym going on. But you know, people played sports and stuff, and but people were very serious about it. And might have worked in gyms. You're talking about twenty and thirty euros now. Gym is a big, big part. Alcohol is seen as a bad thing, not because it's alcohol, not because it's bad for your liver, because it's carbs, it's sugar. It's a it it doesn't fit into their lifestyle into the way they think about themselves. They're very body conscious in what they do. And that's not to say they don't drink, and they will occasionally drink, and they'll drink occasionally to excess, but it's not part It's not part of their culture in the, anything like the same way as it would have been of their parents or their grandparents. And on that basis, I don't see any reason to believe that we're not going to see a continued decline in the importance of alcohol in the culture as these people get older. I wonder if the listeners who asked, please God, will we stop talking about vaccination? realised that we were going to replace it with minimum alcohol pricing. (laughs) And I wonder if knowing that, if they wouldn't have made those requests. We're not talking about transgenderism anymore. God, thank God for that. (laughs) Oh, it just does annoy me, God. It just annoys me so much. There's nothing good about it. So I wanted to talk about the the Labour Party fallout in England. But before we get on to that, something kind of related to the virus actually just came to mind. Little are selling... um, rapid antigen tests now kind of reasonably priced maybe not as as reasonably priced as as people would have liked but oh no to be right 25 for five so it's a five or a pop sitting around what people thought yeah, yeah i mean you'd hope to see the price point go down to it's you know one or two euro ago the reaction to the, the beginning of the sale of these tests from the cmo and from uh, professor philip nolan who's the president of maynooth university and did a lot of the the COVID modelling, or at least his his team did a lot of the COVID modelling, has been pretty out there. I mean, the Tony Hulan said that these tests were a threat to our COVID response. President Philip Nolan said they were snake oil. Yeah, it's it's a hard line, isn't it? It's just an odd thing because rapid antigen testing has been considered for quite a long period of time to be one of the core components in countries that have reopened because these things you can take at home and yes they're not as accurate as a pcr test but you can take multiple of them and you're if you're being tested you know multiple times a week because they're in your home they're relatively non-invasive that would seem to be a good thing but the the thing i thought was most interesting is when they came out and said that these are a threat to our pandemic response my mind immediately went to when they said that about masks yeah it was the, well, you know, if you're wearing a mask, you might get a false sense of security. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll start touching it. And it'll, um, you know, it, it'll just drive up the COVID rates. A series of statements that were backed up by nearly every public health professional in this country involved in NEPIT or in the government. And which was, at the time they said it, I think, Michael, we talked about that at some considerable length for about two months. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it went on a while, okay. It did, yeah. And yeah. um but it it was it was that tone. It was if if people have these they'll take risks that they might otherwise not have and it's just right the way we have dealt with lockdown in Ireland has been or with COVID nineteen has been incredibly paternalistic. The government and, and public health have no not really tried to explain to people why they're doing things or why they're telling the public to do things. Things just happen. 
So, for instance, I, I the um, the WHO and the FDA just updated some of the COVID um, guidelines that they've had, Michael. And it was it was clear, like we were talking about, I would say within a couple of months of this starting, we were talking about the experience uh, and transmission and how this looked to be spreading. And I think I made the point that it looked like masks would be useful, but gloves not really because it, it doesn't seem to spread like that or yeah. not incredibly heavily. And when you look at the, the updates that these people have just made, they're now saying that... Um, Yes, there are there are uh, particles in the air that are heavier than air and will sink to the bottom, but could be agitated. But there's also now they're accepting there is aerosol transmission. How long has that taken for them to admit there's aerosolization? So for, for the listener who thinks that obviously that is the case, we'd know that's the case since the start of the, uh, really the start of the thing when we were looking at some of the like, Korean hospitals and Taiwanese hospitals, it was very clear that this was spreading through the air more than uh, fomites. Yes. The health professionals then engaged in an incredibly long and protracted debate, and quite a nasty debate, about whether or not it could be classed as aerosols, as spreading through aerosols, on the technical definition. Yes, of aerosolization. Yeah. They were talking about the size of... Uh, it was... It was bizarre, and it was harmful, and it got no one anywhere, and it just... But... For months, they've been having this debate. And because of that, none of these large health bodies had up to this point said, actually, lads, it primarily spreads through the air. So ventilation is very important and, you know, go outside. So we finally got that. Yeah, we we got there. We got there to the end. And yet again, this podcast beats global health authorities by about a year. Do you you enjoy, as I do, that sensation where, same with the mask thing. That we have gone from being mask fanatics to being mainstream to being anti-mask, simply by having exactly the same opinion of masks that we've had for the last year. Yeah, there was that. There was that moment where you know we were out there and outrageous, and how could we be saying these things? And then there wasn't even really a day when we were with the mainstream because it went rapidly in the other direction. And I was like, "Wear four masks. Wear masks outside." And now people are pointing at people for not wearing masks outside. And you're going, eh. By the way, you shouldn't need to wear a mask outside. You can if you want. Like, I'm not, not telling you what to do with your health, but like... Absolutely. The primary danger here is, is indoor activities, particularly if you're doing things like singing, shouting, that sort of thing. I mean, this is the point we made, I think. Back April, May, when there were several reports from the Far East, and one thing that was... Clear as a bell was that the number of infections that was occurring outdoors was minuscule. Um, also, at that stage, that, that they, they were saying that the big, big thing that you should be doing was opening the windows, creating as much uh, air as you could. Bad air. But bad area, bad area. But uh, there you go. My asthma theory is making a hell of a comeback. I always liked it. No, actually, although I think the real science is in the four, the four, the four elements. You know, isn't it? Oh, we've got to balance the humours. Yeah, color, uh, bile. There's black bile, yellow bile, color, and something else. Water. Is it water again? You'd never make it as a Greek surgeon. I remember a friend of mine telling me in absolute seriousness once that uh, he was no longer being allowed to eat onions because he was too damp. He'd been to a Chinese uh, doctor. Too damp? He was too damp, and onions apparently encourage dampness. I mean, 
That may have just been due to humidity. <laughs> I don't know. And talking about rapid antigen testing, which we have been saying, and I think we would like, to the extent we say these things, we all say them within a very limited sense. Listen, lads, within a certain context for a certain job, they may have a certain use. Do we think they're the panacea? No. We think that to the extent we have a panacea, it's called a vaccine, uh, which is working at 97.5% effective. And they're wonderful, thank God, and isn't it great? But just considering we are a member, this is the, here, I'm going to just read you something here, Gary, which is from the European Commission Directorate General for Health Safety, right? Mm-hmm. Which has said that um, the council has recommended a framework for rapid antigen tests, a mutual recognition of tests across the EU. And the common list that are considered appropriate use in the context of the situations described in line with countries' testing strategies, that they are A, the test should carry the CE mark, you know, the CE, which is like Communité Européenne, Made in Europe. And not, I think this, they're talking about the, uh, maybe somebody out there could explain, we're talking about 50% accuracy. The um, B, they must meet the minimum performance requirements of not less than 90% sensitivity and 97% specificity. And C, have been validated by at least one member state. Now, my understanding is there are 16 at this stage rapid antigen tests that meet the requirements are recommended by the uh, by the the, the, the directed for food and health food safety. So I'm not exactly sure where the 50 percenter comes in. Can you help me on that? I don't know. I would suspect that you know because in any of these studies they will look at efficiency in different scenarios. Yes. So I would suspect there is somewhere it says there's an efficiency of 50%, but I would be curious what exactly it was measuring there. So like there's a there's a Cochrane uh, review of this and for those who aren't familiar Cochrane is one of the gold standards in medicine they they conduct reviews and meta studies. They look at evidence really isn't it? they see how good the evidence for things are. They they tend to be very very solid. They they have an incredibly good reputation. No, like looking at Cochrane's review of this, in people who did not have COVID-19 antigen tests correctly ruled out infection in 99.5% of people with symptoms and 98.9% of people without symptoms. Antigen tests correctly identified COVID-19 infection in an average of 72% of people with symptoms compared to 58% of people without symptoms. So I think the CMO there might be looking at um, not conducted by a healthcare professional, not conducted properly, person without symptoms. So effectively, the the worst metric you could use for these, and these things aren't complicated. You can still use them improperly, but it also says in in the Cochrane the only thing they they make the point is that the antigen tests vary in sensitivity. So when you when you when you average out, you I mean the average is going to be lower than the best. I'll include a um, a link to the full Cochrane thing, and then people can look at it, and you can make your own decisions on it. It was said to me, Gary, you're better on these things than me, but a guy who's says he knows about statistics. This seems to make sense to me, but with statistics, I'm never sure because sometimes things look obvious and then you turn, somebody says, oh no, oh, that's a very common mistake. That the accuracy of these tests increases with multiple use. With anything like this, as long as the accuracy is over a certain threshold? I, 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 don't, I don't question that they should say, listen, lads, these things are not perfect, that they are... Um, are not 100% accurate that you, sh- you 
it's the vehemence of the the rejection of it that seems to me strange because if i'm not wrong it wasn't only like a month ago no less than a month we were actually talking at government level there were talk discussions about the use of rapid antigen testing and how it was going to be the, the problem here is that there is internal disagreement about antigen testing in Neffet, which is not surprising because Neffet is fucking massive. There are too many people in Neffet to actually deliver anything coherent. 40 or 50 in it. There's an incredible amount of people. And then you have, well, you have all the subgroupings as well. And like, yeah, yeah. Philip Nolan, who we mentioned, is technically like the head of um, the, the epidemiological modeling advisory group. I think just on, on what I was saying about, about paternalistic, and we were talking about WHO and the FDA updating their um, their guidelines. I don't recall ever hearing anything from the from the Irish government or from Neffet or anything like that, which is just here is what is happening, here is how it is spreading, here is why we are doing things. Things just happen, and a lot of what they're doing, they don't have modelling for at least not good modelling. The modelling that they've publicly talked about has been shit. It's been off by miles. Well, again, something we talked about before, and I, 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 I think, and I, I think it's important to say, I, I don't think the Professor Nolan or the CMR are acting in any sense in bad faith or from dubious. I think they, they're saying this because they believe this to be this to be the case, and they believe it passionately to be the case. But you're, I think you're on the nose that the 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 communication approach to this has been a problem because even though until fairly recently the irish population has been very compliant with the, re- the regulations and the advice if you're going to bring people along with you for a long period of time you want to and you want large-scale understanding and agreement you don't want people to experience your policy as something which is being done to them but rather it's explained this is why we are doing this and why we are going to behave in this way in the future you include people in the conversation you ex- you give them an explanation and then they at least they have the sense that they are participating rather than being the subjects of a decision. Now, if he came out and explained in detail all of the... Pro- also, the, and going back to the masks and on uh, before and all sorts of other issues, there is a sense that they worry about the Irish population as a mass as being people who, don't, who really don't know how to sit the right way in the toilet. There is an incredible level of, oh, God, if we tell them that, they'll go off and they'll strip. My, as you know, I like to say that basically they seem to be worried we'll strip naked and, and lick each other in the street. But like Tony Houlihan, when he was talking about how these are the, the antigen tests, the sale, the public availability of these things is a threat to our COVID response. As his nightmare described someone just going into Lidl and picking up a pound of sausages, charcoal and antigen tests. Now, Little did respond to that by putting together a deal saying you could get all of those things for 31 euro. Yeah pissed off a surprising amount of members of Neffet but they probably need to be pissed off that is not a nightmare that's a great scenario if people are able to go in and get easy to use testing that they can use at home that's non-invasive that doesn't require government oversight or you know a curtailment of any civil liberties and you can use it if you want and you don't have to use it if you don't want it that seems a pretty perfect situation but there is there seems this terror of giving Irish people information and letting them make the best choices for them letting them make choices there's a terror that if you give, let them make choices they'll make all their own choices and they'll even make choices that are beyond the 
beyond the choice A, B, and C, they'll choose D. They'll go mad. I mean, I don't think there's, to be fair, there's, and it's not that I have over the years my my faith in the wisdom of the masses, Gary, has been shaken somewhat. But I'm still willing to believe that in situations like this, if you explain the stuff to most people, most people will react. And not just most people, the lar- very, very large majority of people will will work out and will behave in, in, in the way that is uh, the most appropriate. They will get on board. But this, I think you're right also that there may be an element of what's happening here as a bit of a a public manifestation of a private fight. There was there was an interesting one, actually. Philip Nolan, again, came out, said these things were snake oil, uh, told people that they should stay safe when socialising outdoors, small numbers, distance, masks. The thing on masks and outdoor uh, socialisation, for so long, we were like, being outdoor and indoor are exactly the same, and that was obviously horseshit. It was obviously because if we, we know it spreads mostly by aerosols, being in a contained space is obviously much more dangerous. But we refuse to make that distinction. I think, again, because they were worried that them people would just be like, oh, I'm going to go out, as opposed to just staying locked in your house. But the interesting thing I found was that Nolan says this on Twitter, and Professor Michael Mina shows up. Now, Mina is at the Harvard um, School of Public Health. He has been pretty prominent on this. But he's also been a big proponent of rapid testing, amongst other measures. And his response was, for an advisor to the Irish government, you don't appear to know what you're talking about. I said that his Nolan's comments add nothing of benefit and sow confusion. And then he said Nolan should be ashamed of his demeanour. So that is one of the top epidemiologists in the world turning up to go, actually, you're a bit of an ass. Slap that. Well, that's, I mean, in the, in the world of acad- you know, science, science, academic science, that's pretty nasty. Yeah, particularly for an academic to say to the president of a university. <laughs> it's not really the done thing. But no, this, this, is, this is just more a sign that they, no one is trusted. And so no one is informed, because if you're informed, you might make the wrong decision. So it's better that you don't have the capability to make any fucking decision and just do what you're told. The problem there, of course, is that in the long run, that undermines trust in public health and will also eventually just lead to a situation where people just start ignoring you. Like, even I, anytime I see Tony Houlihan talk about something, my initial thought is, I wonder how much of this is just bullshit. Just political <laughs> nonsense that I am to be told because they're terrified that something will happen. Yes, something. Not quite sure what. Before we close up, Michael, Labour Party... In England, they didn't have a uh, great week. I know we were talking about this on the last podcast because as we we're recording it, the numbers were coming in. Um, Labour got slaughtered. Yes, um, it, there, there's a, a little bit of yes, they did. Now I don't want to get overly parsimonious about it. I, they did an awful lot better if you look at those areas who who voted two thousand sixteen. And comparing to the areas of what in 2017, that's much. But if you look at areas like, say, Hartlepool, I mean, they, they won the by-election in Hartlepool. Oh, it is also important to note here that um, in England they got slaughtered. When you look at the, the Welsh and the Scottish Labour, that's a different story. Yeah, I think that's actually Welsh. <laughs> this is not a sentence I would say very often. I think the Welsh results were in some ways the most interesting and informative. If you are somebody who was interested 
or cared about the Labour Party because there's been a realignment happening and this part not just it's it happened in Britain it's happened in the United States and but it's happening all over the Western world in the in in the in politics and how it's done for a long time politics you had if we imagine the analogy is that you have two people in a car and the guy driving it was the was the economy for a long time so you the, the dominant issue for the political parties was the economy and through the the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s sort of the free market economy thing was the dominant narrative the tories won all through the 80s and into the 90s with that the labor party only becomes successful again when tony blair adopts an explicitly pro-business free market approach and that was the united states that was in europe as well it's changed now it used to be culture was in the past culture now is in the mainstream is in the main seat and that's what's happened in england the tories have moved left on economics but labor has alienated its traditional core vote in the midlands and the north because this kind of anti-patriotic anti-national anti-traditional values progressive liberal profile does not work brexit was that i think it, people say it's brexit brexit was the last obvious ex, ex symptom of of this process but it was brexit's just what part of it it's not the only thing in it it's it's a cultural drift and the labor party and the reason i say this sorry guys i just i finished but why Wales is interesting is because the Labour Party in Wales is still it certainly is pro-Europe, it's it's anti-Brexit, but it's still very Welsh and it's very pro-Wales, it's very much about it very it's still considers it's okay to have a Welsh identity, to be proud of a Welsh identity and to express that sense of nation of nationhood. Which it seems that English Labour is deeply uncomfortable with the idea of, of Britishness or Englishness as a positive thing. No, I, I think you were talking about how badly they did in the, in the Midlands. I think look at the the London mayoral election. Yeah, that was yeah that was that was interesting. Sadiq Khan wins a second term, but he goes into a runoff against a conservative rival. Now, London the last couple of years has not been kind for the conservatives, at least not in this level of politics. So Khan wins. He wins 55.2% at the runoff level. But Khan had been like 17 and 20 points ahead. Yeah, Khan would have just romped home, I think, normally. So I think there's there's a lot there that's deeply worrying um, to the Labour Party. When you look at it, when you compare um, the Conservative vote ver- uh, and look at the last elections, it looks like the UKIP vote has been entirely absorbed into the Conservative Party. In most places, in or sorry, in, in some of the places you actually saw some going back to the Lib Dem, some going to the Green, and in the odd place, Labour actually got some of the, it looks like they got some of the UKIP vote. That's not really surprising. A lot of UKIP was very working class. Yeah, yeah. It would have been kind of traditional Labour voter. Now, that's not to say UKIP was primarily Labour. The last polling I saw on it said I think it was 60% of UKIP voters had originally uh, had, had usually voted for the Conservatives or had been members of the Conservatives before they'd gone to UKIP. But there was always a, a sizable uh, portion of UKIP, which was not what you would traditionally call right-wing. And they could have been people that um, Labour could have gotten back. What seems to be particularly concerning for Labour 
when people were breaking down some of this, the Hartlepool results and the results in the northeast was it became clear because I, I, I think in the last election uh, the, the the pro the Brexit party the reason the Tories hadn't taken the seat was because the Brexit party scored twenty five percent so the shall we say the Brexit vote was split and the Labour Party the Labour uh, MP got elected so there was an expectation that this would obviously be a target for them. But what is particularly, it, it seems to be worrying in them is that they didn't just pick up those Brexit votes, but they seem to have held on and picked up Labour votes, who may or may not have been Brexit or Brexiteers, but weren't people who were actually, who, who voted for the Brexit party. They may have supported Brexit in the election, but they didn't support Brexit party. But whatever, but there are actual Labour voters. And the thing about this is, I don't think we have this, we understand a lot of the time in Ireland, the cultural gap between the Tories and the Labour in parts of the United Kingdom. It's just as deep, I would say in some ways deeper and bitterer than the gap would have been a few a few years ago between, say, Fine Fall and Fine Gael on civil war politics. I talked to friends of mine from the north of England from places like Hull and uh, Sheffield, and they will tell you, they are Labour people. They are a Labour family. They would not dream of voting Tory. I mean, there's a cultural despite for Tory, for Tory politicians, for Tory politics, which probably was all, has been there, oh God, since the time that Gerald marches, but then under Thatcher, that really became intensified. That cultural disposition is breaking down. And that is incredibly worrying for Labour because that was what held people in. Even it, it meant that essentially the Labour Party in the southeast of England and in London could do more or less what it liked at a cultural level that didn't impact on these people. That's gone now. And once, in a, in a way, what happened? If you, it's something akin to what happened under Reagan with the southern states in the United States. People who just could not imagine themselves voting Republican end up voting Republican. Now people who could not have imagined themselves voting Tory 10 years ago are voting Tory. And once that wall is broken, you can't build it again. Actually, the where the, the, the focus primarily has been on the Labour and Conservatives because they are, you know, big ones. Yeah. The Green Party, however, also did pretty well. So they may also be siphoning off probably primarily Labour, but there would be conservative greens who would be kind of uh, open to it. the first past the post election system makes it quite interesting because often you will vote not for the person you want but for the smallest available evil yeah yeah because yeah. if you split the vote over multiple parties you're screwed i think the greens yeah i think and that's one of the again one of the concerns that the labor have is because whichever way they go they seem kind of, they, they seem screwed if they swing if they decide to swing back culturally, which is more difficult, I think it's easier for the Tories to move left on economics than it is for the Labour Party to move to the to the right on social cultural issues. But if they were to try to do that, move more back into a, a more sort of left of centre position on it, the problem is that they're going to lose. The, the Greens now are a political reality in the southeast of England and along the south coast, and in and, and then in the big university cities. And they represent a real threat now to the to those progressive voters that the Labour has. That if they go back to the centre and the social stuff, the Greens will pick those up. They'll pick they'll pick up those votes. If they stay where they are and they try and mind their left flank, 
There's no reason why the Tories won't keep coming at them in the Midlands and the North after they're more socially conservative voters. It is a big problem for them. In England, it was a council election. There were a great deal of council uh, elections going on. In Scotland, it was a standard election, and in Wales, it was a standard election. The SNP were one seat shy of an overall majority. However, that's not going to be a problem. There's the, I think there's like seven or eight Greens. Greens are pro-independence as well. They'll go in together. It's, I think that's the fourth consecutive term for the SNP. Yeah. In Wales, Wales actually got an interesting uh, one. Labour hold 30 seats and the Welsh Parliament has 60 seats exactly. So you have um, the Liberal Democrats have one seat. So we could get that, that Labour Lib Dem coalition. But Plaid Camus, they have 13 seats. And the Tories also went up five seats to 16. So the Tories, again, even in Wales, had a really good day. The, the, the important thing for Plaid Cymru is that the they were overtaken by the Tories for the battle for second place. But but on the same vote. The, the Plaid, Plaid Cymru uh, and Tories, much the same vote. But the, the Tories... I wonder, I, I presume... It's the Welsh Assembly is called the Shannad, I believe. But it's, it's not spelt the same as like S-E-N-D-D-E-D or something. We'll call it Senad. Um, presumably they have a speaker, so maybe they'll elect the Liberal as the speaker. And then it'll be 30-29. And Labour Labour will be able to go ahead by themselves. But it's there's talk as we speak that um, the that the Starmer is actually going to resign, uh, which would be a fairly rapid exit. And what's his name? Burnham? Nick Burnham? I want to say Nick Burnham, but it's not Nick Burnham, is it? He's uh, in Birmingham. He's sort of, and Andy Burnham, sort of the acceptable face of Labour up there has has put him. He said he will serve if if called, or he will help if asked. So we may be seeing a new leader. I, I'm sceptical about the capacity of a, of a leader to do anything for you in, a, in, a, in, in, in this situation. Well, it looks like the pressure for Starmer to go is coming from the more extreme left of the Labour Party, who have been deeply unhappy with Starmer. They have, but Gary, have you been following any of, their, any of the social media, the, tweet, the tweeting? It's really... Listen, we all do it. Every, if, you're in, if you are a, ever invested in a political idea or a party... We all have confirmation bias. We all have the ability to not see the, what is plain and obvious to everybody else. But the number of Labour Party people on the, on the left in the Labour Party, people from Momentum, those kinds of groups, basic, coming out and saying, the reason we lost is we abandoned our basic socialist principles. We weren't, you know, just a smidgen of socialism might attract people. You think, <laughs> yeah, what you needed was more Corbyn. What you needed was more left policies. I mean, on one hand, he has that pressure, but you also saw uh, Khalid Mahmood, who was one of the front benchers in Labour. He yeah. left the front bench after the election and said they have become consumed with uh, what he called brigades of woke social media warriors yeah. and a London-based bourgeoisie and that they're now focusing on those issues which and those issues are irrelevant to working class people. So on one hand, you've got quite a left wing saying we need to go full socialism here, luxury space communism maybe. And on the <laughs> other, 
the more traditional working class element of labor going, well, we don't care about that. That's all nonsense. We just need to improve people's lives economically and build communities and do those things. And then you have Tony Blair wandering around the place looking like some old wizard. God, he doesn't look... That's the thing, you know. If you if somebody, you know, spends... Somebody gets 20 years older, they actually look older than they did when they weren't 20 years older. Everybody's shocked by this. They, 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 there is an element in the Labour Party which hates Tony Blair with a kind of a passion that you used to only see in Ireland with people from certain types of people of Fine Gael talking about Eamon de Valera. And there was a quote going around which I, I suspect that Tony was not unconnected with himself. Uh, when he, he was constantly quote, uh, accused of hating the party and hating the traditions of the party and the, the connection with organised labour and the trades unions and all this. Blair said, it's not true. I don't hate the party. I don't hate it. I love the party. I love the tradition of the party. There's only one tradition I hate, and that's losing. And the terrible thing about Blair is they can say whatever they like, but he won three times. Three times he won. That's galling for them. As well. The Laker, I suppose they say, well, of course he did. He was only a Tory in uh, in labor in labor suits but yeah tony's wandering out and has offered his his help by the way gary is there anything vaguely familiar to you about this discussion a, a political party a former formerly dominant um run by a masterful electoral campaigner all through the 90s and 2000s now saying on one hand no no we have to speak stick with our modern progressive agenda where and then the old fogies outside of the capital saying no no we have to go back to our traditional roots and speak to the people that were traditionally voted for us Does that have any that sounds that I don't know why that sounds vaguely familiar to me. Mm-hmm. A party the you know strong working class tradition, uh, rejecting those people and leaving them for some third party to pick up in droves, thereby <laughs> cementing that party's ascent and focusing instead on trying to capture a cultural capital, which they failed totally to do so because they're despised. Yeah. yeah no, no, nothing immediately comes to mind. Well, we can think about that until we come back to the nice people on Wednesday. I, I must ask some of the people I know in politics about it, see what they think about it. See if anything comes to their minds. See, we'll see. We'll see. But anyway, until then, enjoy your Sunday, folks. All the best.